Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm delighted to be joined by my fellow monster man, Connor Nestor, who's currently coaching in the Cambodian Premier League. Connor, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here, Connor. Thanks for inviting me. Connor, how's all in Cambodia at the moment? Yeah, I, I guess uh, 20, 2020 in, in Cambodia, we were a lot more fortunate than most countries in the world, really. Um, that kind of uh, COVID didn't, didn't massively affect us. It affected the country economically because there was no tourism and things like that, obviously, was shot. Uh, but from a health perspective, we kind of... Uh, flew under the radar, I guess, of, of, of COVID in a way, but uh, that changed uh, massively since about February February this year. And uh, we're kind of going through, I think, maybe what everyone in the rest of the world, if you like, went through last year. So, so it's, we're a little bit like a year late. Uh, now the government have gonna, done a good job of, of vaccinating people. And um, now I guess we're just we're where everybody else is in terms of that kind of, you know, what's the next step and when when do things get back to normal and do they get back to normal, etc. You know, um, we're just on a two week break from the league now. We got we got ten games played um, with kind of interruptions left, right, and centre, uh, but we've got ten games played and um, hopefully we'll get the league finished in time for would normally finish around end of October, early November. And in terms, you know, of this chapter of your life story, you're in Cambodia, you know, far from where it all began, Connor, in the shores of the west of Ireland. Can you tell us more about that footballing upbringing? Yeah, like I'm from Fines, a really small place in, 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 in West Limerick. Um, but it was a, uh, a place where I was very fortunate, where kind of the generation slightly older than me, the generation slightly younger than me, were all obsessed with with you know, football association, football, soccer, as we called it growing up. Um, and uh, I caught that bug, like, as, as early as I can remember. And just, you grow up playing on the street, playing on the schoolyard, playing on the GA field when no one was looking. Um, and, yeah, it was just kind of in, in, in the blood from as early as I can remember. I just, that kind of age-old story of... Uh, a young boy kind of falling in love with with the game a little bit and um um that's where it started and um played at a reasonable level in 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 Limerick I played in university I went to NUI Minute uh, played a couple of Collingwood cups there and um at kind of school by level I would have played uh up to kind of international trials at under 15s level because I was playing on the representative team uh, but it, it, I kind of began to see uh, after those trials kind of that the the pathway for me certainly as a professional footballer probably wasn't going to be there. I was I was probably um, punching above my weight maybe at that time even, um, and also felt although I had great coaches growing up, they were they were great coaches in in the human sense in terms of you know it was somebody's dad or somebody's older brother or. Uh, there weren't coaches in the, you know, from their own educational background, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, so from the age of 17, kind of, I became a coach and a player. Uh, and uh, by the time I graduated from university, kind of the coaching was taken over in terms of I didn't get into coaching uh, immediately with an intent of making it my career. But uh, I was very lucky, the first group of boys that I coached, that, um, they, they, you know, your hope is you inspire your players. But actually, the way they took to, to me kind of inspired me, if you like, in terms of thinking, you know what, may, maybe I could give this, give this a go. Uh, but the problem is, like, it's 2002, West Limerick. I, I didn't know anyone that was a professional footballer, never mind professional coach. Um, you know, there was no reference points, points if you like. So, um, so I did a degree in English and history in NUI Minute, and uh, the, the 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 thinking was go and be, you know, a, a secondary school teacher and develop as a coach, kind of in the background, and see see if kind of 
the footballing industry or the sporting industry in Ireland could catch up a little bit uh, because there was no real industry at that time. I think the Football Association employed about six um, regional development officers around that time and um, it was unheard of to, like, for people in the League of Ireland really to be working full time. There would have been one or two clubs. Um, so that kind of would have been uh, the background and kind of where things started for me and how I kind of fell into coaching, if you like. Yeah, there's a lot there to discuss, Connor. I mean, 17 years of age in 2002, that's when you first get thoughts in your mind about pursuing football as a full-time career. Of course, you say you didn't have the reference points, be they local or be they, you know, domestically in Ireland. But nonetheless, you know, even though it's only 2002, I'm sure, you know, internet and Google wasn't <laughs> that mainstream <laughs> back then either. So what I'm curious about is, like, obviously there's a gap there now between 2002 and 2021. You know, where did you have to go and how did you get that thought process crystallized in your mind, Connor, that, you know what, this is the career for me. You know, these are my reference points. I'm going to find a way by hook or by crook. Yeah, I, I think the, like, the, the, the interesting point and... I think it's maybe a little bit this way with, with like being becoming a player also in terms of if you look at a Messi and a Ronaldo, like the the starting point is is the two young boys that were obsessed with football, um, and you know the determination and the dedication comes after after the obsession or the love, and I think actually uh, when I started coaching there was a meeting of two loves in terms of the game of football and then. I quickly realized that I loved teaching um, and that uh, I've explained it before in terms of I didn't score too many goals now when I played. But when you score a goal, it's that, you know, it's that uh, ecstasy, isn't it? It's a kind of instant euphoric feeling. And, and yet it's very, very fleeting, almost, you know, uh, almost gone instantly as well. Um, whereas teaching, you know, when you, there's somebody there and they, they maybe couldn't, execute something and and then um you set out on a plan alongside them and ultimately they do the work and they, they they make the progress happen but when when you see them then executing something that they before were not able to do it's not it's not euphoria it's not ecstasy but um you know i now have the reference points of seeing some of those kids 15 16 years later and you know, it just brings a smile to your face when you see them. Just saying, it may not, it may not necessarily be that learning even took place, um, but just the building of relationships and that kind of that, um, yeah, you know, sport brings people together, and then so that love of the sport, and and then this kind of what now has turned out to be a profession of coaching, kind of you know, parting of the waters a little bit. Um, so. So in that first year, really, it wasn't about, like I said, a career. It was just um, perhaps I was fortunate in that I, there, was, there was some raw materials there that, that I was able to put to work before I'd educated myself, if you like. Um, and then you know, when you're hitting the wall in terms of trying to improve players, that, that's where it's like, well, you know, where do I go to find the solution to that? And, and um, luckily around that time, there was a lot of really good football teams playing. And, and still to this day, I feel like that that's, that's the best reference point, watching the best teams play and, and learning from them and uh, the best coaches teams play and learning from them. And, and that's what it was at the beginning. And it was really, I always had, always had this idea that, that, um, when you're designing practices to try and replicate the game, right? I, I was never someone that was a big fan of drills, you know, and dribbling around cones and stuff like this. It has its place, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I think there was maybe some innovation there from the beginning. And, and I really like to go back to it. I got lucky. The first group of players I coached were just wanted to learn. Um, and the, that trust was there. Uh, there was maybe a three or four year age gap between me and them. And in some ways, maybe that helped. And what I know now, you know, 19, 20 years down the road is that like that big brother, that like senior pro coaching is more powerful than the coach 
coach and then now as a coach you're you're almost trying to replicate within your teams that relationship that I would have had with that first team if you like um so yeah after a year then it became you know let's let's try and make this happen as a career and it was literally do every course you can get on uh buy every dvd you can buy like uh you know, I'm not quite as old as you hinted at. That, that, like Google was was in operation, um, and and there was resources on the on the internet. Not quite like like you go onto Twitter now and you'd have to come off it after 13 minutes. It's like information overload. Um, so it's not like it was now. That's for sure. But like you've alluded to it in your own question, in terms of like once that hunger and desire is there, it's it's just a matter of. Uh, of of how really you know and and you you find out the how because you kind of don't give up like in in terms of just trying to get better um and yeah i'm still on that journey now you know um uh, i i still put on some sessions now that are probably worse than the ones i put on back then you know so it's it's definitely not a uh development's not linear you know um and and, and you definitely feel that every day yeah, I'll give you stinks and ladders. I don't think I can afford you a uh, Google, Connor. But um, yeah. <laughs> one thing you alluded to earlier on, very interesting. Um, you know, as a coach and as a player, right? As a player, you're always looking for that moment of ecstasy. So as a coach, mm. what you say, you're enabling that player through the session design or the nature of a drill to create those moments of ecstasy for them. I mean, for a coach like yourself, as you said, who's been involved in a game at grassroots level, all the way up to first team level as you are now, that feeling of ecstasy for you as a coach, is that difference between grassroots and the first team? Or is it more similar than we we're all led to believe? Uh, great question. Um, no, I would say no. I, I, for me, the only difference um, in the role I'm in now as a head coach of a professional team is the pressure. Um, and the pressure is not what people think it is in terms of, getting fired or, uh, you know, pr pressure from the fans. Of course, those are real things and they exist, but the pressure is there's between staff and players, about 50 families relying uh, on the success of our football team and, and I'm the one who's in charge of the direction we take um, at the start of every season and, and for, every, for every day within that season. Um, so that's the only difference, in, in, and like it, it's a significant one. Um, but the the difference in terms of like the process and the feelings that are that, that that you get from day to day, I think both as a player and a coach are the same. And actually, sometimes like you have to remind yourself of that as a coach because that external uh, pressures that that, that I mentioned can take over and um, it never leads to success when those things take over. It leads to fear and fear certainly is not normally a, a fantastic um, emotion in terms of, you know, producing, I think, elite level performance. Um, so that's probably in, in my current role, my, my biggest challenge is, is, is making sure that kind of, and, you know, the, the, the fear with the, the grassroots kids uh, it was coming from the parents a lot of the time, you know, the parents on the sidelines shouting, you know, kick it to the fast forward or whatever, don't mind any of this playing out of the back nonsense. And like, uh, so like, but the, the fear didn't really exist naturally in that young child. Um, and that's probably a, a big part of the job here is there's no parents, but there's the real pressures of, of the environment that, that we're in. And it's, it's, how to alleviate those pressures because ultimately you want to tap into that that child that fell in love with the game that helped this now professional footballer master the game well enough to be a professional um and uh, that, yeah that's that, that's the challenge so so in in many ways i think you know now you see a lot of top level coaches who like me started at the very very beginning and and i think yeah, it's about time and, and years and earning your stripes, but it's it's also in some ways they don't have the 20 years of being within the professional game like the ex-player. Um, 
and so the divide between maybe that young boy and, and that 40 year old ex pro, if you like, the divide is maybe a little bit bigger or longer or, or uh, what, you know, um, there's a bigger separation there. Um, so no, I, I just think it's, it's different, different pressures and uh, maybe different ways to, to try and build an environment that, that kind of alleviates that, that, that fear and pressure. And then what I'm curious about too, Connor, is that transition you've made too from coaching to management. And I say that mm -hmm. too, because your role is quite multifaceted, right? You're not just a first team coach, you're also involved heavily within recruitment, within analysis, so on and so forth. I mean, what were the challenges along the way for yourself adapting that that extra responsibility? Um, I, I think the big challenge when you do have a multifaceted position, the, the big challenge is, is clarity, um, is tackling each um, different task that you have with clarity. Um, and um, because in all of those areas that you mentioned, you know, the CEO is the boss, the, the owner owns the club, uh, the general manager runs the club day to day. Um, but being kind of the head football person in the organization, uh, you're the person that's kind of lent on for the vision in these different departments, whether it's recruiting or scouting or sports science or analytics or whatever it might be. Um, so the important thing is, is being clear in, in what you think is the best for the club um, and what the vision is. And, you know, sometimes in terms of like, after that, I think the, the steps, you can make wrong steps uh, once you're, you're clear in, in the initial vision, um, because you take wrong steps, you, you've always have that roadmap, if you like, of, you know, this is, this is what we, we want for the fo football club. And this is why we want it. And uh, the vision, I think, has to be connected to the landscape or the culture of wherever it is that you are. Um, and then ultimately, as the driver, you need to believe in it. So that, like, it, when, I, when I made the decision to, to become the head coach here, it wasn't a very good financial decision. Uh, it was, um, in, in some respects, like lots of people didn't understand my position. Uh, or the decision that I made. What I did because I was here and I could tap into the culture and, and the promise that, that lives within Cambodian football. Um, and many of the things that I saw or the potential that I saw, there was an alignment there in the things, in the things that I kind of believe in. Um, uh, so, so I think that's the, that's the big thing. And we've made many mistakes along the way. But I think the one thing now I'm in now in my fourth season, the one thing that I would be happy about is that the messages delivered on day one um, are, are the same messages, are the same beliefs, and um, ultimately they're about values and principles. Um, and I think it's important that that you know every person has to evolve, evolve. The club has to evolve, but like your principles and values, if they're correct they don't really change over time yeah, and it's one thing i suppose connor to speak about clarity vision and purpose but it's another thing to kind of live it and reap the rewards which you did winning the league title in cambodia what was that process like building a title winning team both on and off the pitch like well i think the the, the, the start and foundation for our particular league title was failure um in terms of 2018 was a complete disaster. Um, I had five weeks to recruit a team, five weeks to get a team to the, um, to the fitness levels that I needed to play the way that I wanted them to play. And I wanted them to play that way based on, you know, it was going to be high pressing team. Uh, why did I want that? I wanted that because, you know, the Cambodians, they're not big, strong um, footballers in general. Um, uh, but they're, they're quick and they're technical. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to play as far away from our own goals as possible. Um, I felt they had the technical capacity to do that. Um, and I felt it made, made sense because, you know, high balls were going to be an issue, for example. Um, 
So kind of that, that, that's what we wanted to do. And I was like, well, can I get them fit enough to do that? Uh, maybe not right away. Um, not without a proper preseason. Can I recruit the players that are going to help us do that? Maybe not right away. Um, and then we had a riot uh, <laughs> um, in 2018. Um, uh, and I, I, it was an oversight for me in terms of I did a lot of homework in terms of how they played in the past. A lot of homework into kind of the characters of the players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I never thought of asking like about disciplinary issues or anything like that in the past. And from day one, they were so good with me. I didn't even I didn't even imagine that it was ever an issue. But there had been disciplinary issues. There had been, I suppose, uh, Russia Russia blood to the head kind of moments in the past where they had incidents that leaded to bans and. Uh, my seventh game in charge, we'd win one, two, drawn two, lost two. And in the seventh game, the game, I won't go into the game, but basically we missed an open goal to go 2-1 ahead. They went down the other end, scored a deflected goal. Then there was a little bit of a coming together in the field and that led to kind of uh, a fight on the field. Our kit man ran onto the field. Their Japanese player punched our kit man. So... And that was the the kind of, um, yeah, that was that 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 was the the, the match really that lit the, lit the fire in terms of, for in Cambodian culture, like a foreigner to fight a local, that's an issue. Um, a younger person to to fight a more senior person, that's a massive issue. And so the stand emptied, and the players went, and uh, I was just stuck to my technical area, like thinking, what's happening here. Um, and the aftermath of that meant half season bans for like half my team. And it also meant me like sitting down with the, the board, if you like, and going like, what, like, what's this about? And like, luckily for me, because of the history that was there, I didn't get, none of the blame was attached to me in terms of disciplinary issues, but kind of the blank canvas of how do we rebuild from this was given to me. And then the pressure of winning was gone because we didn't have a team. Um, so at the end of that 2018 season, um, the band players came back with three games to go. We won those three games and there would have been a lot of pressure on me from the outside, but actually because of the clarity we spoke about earlier, my relationship with the CEO and owner was very good and, and I was able to sell to them what we were going to do. And then we put a team together, basically. Uh, we, we got some people out that I felt we needed to get out. And we got some good characters in uh, with our, our foreign players. And yeah, we went on a 33-game unbeaten run, which included the, the three games at the end of that season. And the last two games that we lost were the last day of the season when we had already lifted the league title. And heartbreakingly, we lost the cup final on penalties um, in in a game that was uh, that had plenty of incidents as well. So, um, so yeah, it, it was like you know the the foundation was the failure um, and the room, if you like, that the failure gave everybody to go. Well, let's let's learn this. What 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 the coach is trying to teach us. Let's try it. There's no real pressure on us. And then kind of away from the spotlight, if you like, I think the players were beginning to see, to be fair to them, I think they could see in, uh, at the very start what, what I wanted to do. Um, maybe not all of them, but a, a core of them. Um, and the key was when, when the big bands came was, well, you know, I spoke about fear and pressure already. There was no fear, there was no pressure. And then they started really giving in to playing the way we wanted to play and, and, um, that gave us a lot of momentum in the preseason of 2019, and and like I said, that momentum went on for 33 games. So it it was great. It was it was it was really nice, you know, to just shake hands with the CEO at the end of that season and and say thank you to the owner because, you know, the pressure was on them really to relieve me of my duties if you like in 2018. But like they they had kind of. Um, the strength of of their own characters and the conviction really of 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 their own vision in terms of you know we may as well do this now 
you know, they, they, they knew a lot of the things we were doing and wanted to do had to be done. Um, I'm not so sure they knew it was going to lead to success, um, uh, you know, as quickly in the end as it came. Uh, but, but thankfully it did, you know. You know, patience tends to pay off. Albeit, you know, mentioning patience and football in the same sentence doesn't really go hand in hand. But having, yeah. sp having spoken to you a few times already, Conor, before, I know you're a firm advocate of analysis, so much so that, in fact, you take a very hands-on approach with it. Just really interested and intrigued in terms of implementing that new style of play. I mean, what were some of the KPIs and some of the metrics you would have used to evaluate your team's progress and performance? So, and this actually leads back again to the, the vision and clarity in terms of, you know, our, our, our KPIs I would have delivered in my interview with the CEO in terms of, you know, this is what I'm going to build, this is the style, et cetera. And, and this is a way for you to monitor the progress. Obviously, winning games is, is the most important way and you never want to lose sight of that. But you can be winning games um, and the KPIs would tell you it's not going to last forever. And equally, you can be losing games, but the KPIs will, will allude to the fact that, you know, you may be just missing an ingredient. Um, so, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I was lucky in terms of the CEO really bought into that. And, you know, uh, being the CEO of our, our club's not his only position. He, he runs five or six businesses for our owner. So, you know, numbers are important, obviously, to people like that. And, and they like their idea of that. But at the same time, they won't just, like, you know, go along with it. Like, if, if you go after the game and you point towards certain KPIs, you can do that after every game, right? The, the key is to say from the outset, this is these are important to us because... Um, and then you can't hide from that. You have to deliver that then. Um, and ultimately, of course, if you don't win games, the KPIs won't keep you in your job for very long either. Um, but yeah, look, it, it, like the KPIs that are important to us, as I said, is like we want to recover the ball as close to the opponent's goal as possible. So we look at metrics like um, ball recoveries in the attacking third. Um you know, the, the weather is a, a big factor here. So sometimes we do have to play a 330 and 35 degree plus heat. So, you know, we'd be happy with about 15 ball recoveries in the attack and third in that kind of heat. Our home games are played at six o'clock, which is a bit cooler. And we would target a 20 plus if we can. Um, then, uh, you know, passes per defensive action is another one that we like in terms of and we're very ambitious with that in terms of like, we try to get nine, nine. So that's on average allowing nine passes or less that the opponent has before pressure is applied uh, or a defensive action is applied of some description. And um, like that, that, that's a really ambitious, if you, if you look at Manchester City, I think it's slightly higher than that. Um, but but the, the reason we, we went for that is, you know, some fields here aren't great. Some teams here don't want to build up that much. Um, uh, many do. Uh, but just for that reason, we, we wanted to be ambitious with that and say, you know, you know like I, I think we can press more maybe than, than some of the elite teams um, and more frequently. Obviously, fitness is, is something that you need to do that. Um, and I'm very lucky that throughout my time here, the club have allowed me to keep adding staff. Um, we have a great sports scientist. We now have a great head of medical, great goalkeeping coach. Um, so like we've, we've been able to add to, to our staff all the time to make sure that we, you know, we're able to deliver on these KPIs. Uh, we like to have 60 to 65% possession. And again, that's, just so that like pressing high is easier because you have to do it less. Um, the PPDA, PPDA, like I just said again, easier because you keep the ball more. And making sure that the ball is near the opponent's goal, it's an easier thing to dictate if, if you have the ball. Um, um, 
deep completions. So that's receiving the ball 20 meters from the opponent's inline um, and uh, XG. And, and basically we just want to outscore our opponent on, on those two things. So when I say outscore and XG, it would be like 1.0 more than our opponent. So, um, and um, there, there, are, there are other KPIs that might be game specific uh, but the important thing to say, I guess, about our KPIs is we don't look after a game and go, you know, we didn't get 65% ball possession in this game, therefore, you know, failure. The KPIs are meant for us to look at over 30 games plus and, and see where we are. Do we look at it game by game? Sure, of course we do, um, just so that we can start to maybe be proactive if if we're lagging in particular areas but they're, they're, they're not really meant to be I, I, i'm not a fan of per 90 metrics um they can be used in the right and, and look the context is what's important when you talk about analytics and, uh, and and statistics it's what context you're using it in and um are, are you aware of of the, the full context um so, you know, um, there are fields here that we can't build up. So, you know, the, the, the counter-pressing, if you like, metrics are more important in those games. Um, uh, there, are, there are teams we play who um, maybe use the ball extremely well, but don't press extremely well. The possession now becomes massively important. Um, so... So, yeah, so I, I think we, we try to have that balance of the vision and the clarity that I spoke about. But at the same time, like, we're not a slave to these KPIs. If, if we have to defend closer to our own goal to win the game, we'll do that. Um, ultimately, it's professional football and we're trying to win football games. Um, it's, not, um, it's not about style or it's not about, like, uh, ideology or anything like that. Um, it, it's about us being able to, um, yeah, evaluate basically uh, where we're at in relation to our overall long-term kind of plan. Um, really, really interesting. I mean, what comes to mind is there's this chess player, very famous chess player called Magnus Carlsen, and he speaks about. He was asked before about the style of playing chess, and he was saying the only weakness chess player has is a preference for any style of play and it's really interesting to hear about that analytic and feedback loop with your game model as if it informs your game model which it does mm. but as you said context is key and that ability to adapt and vary between yeah. the counter pressing you know like the, i think the best example of that from 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 that i have seen in, on, on my travels is like pep guardiola as we all know, is obsessed with build-up play. Uh, that's his own words. Um, but when he got Ederson, he played long balls from a goal kick and, and put uh, uh, Aguero offside. Um, and he's, he's obsessed with build-up because he believes that um, he wants to be the protagonist in the game because it, it means that he's control of his own destiny or his team's destiny. Uh, it also means he can control the numbers up the pitch in terms of like they control where the free man is and where the extra man is. And ultimately where you're losing the ball more frequently is further from your goal. And, and therefore you can make more errors, let's say, before ultimately results in, in. So, so, you know, you could be forgiven and, and there's, you know, coaches around the world. I mean, Guardiola has had his impact on world football. You go to the MLS so many teams build up. You go to the A-League in Australia, so many teams build up. It's the two opposite sides of the world. But like, do they build up for the same reasons as Pep Guardiola? Um, do they build up in the same way? Um, and is it more stylistic for them to be viewed upon in that way? Um, because if you like, not that Pep invented any of this and he wouldn't say he did, but you know, a change has come in world football since that Barcelona team that he's coached. And, and I, I think that for me makes the point that you've just made in terms of it is a means to an end, just like Mourinho's is. 
it's a means to an end that there's opposite sides of the spectrum and they're very different on so many different levels. But I do believe they're the exact same in terms of they just want to win. Um, um, you know, and uh, um, like it's the Bielsa thing, like in terms of like, I'm sure I'm going to misquote him, but like he's often asked why he doesn't change the way his teams play. And he's like, if you're going to teach something, you need to believe in it to the death because your players need to believe that you believe it. Um, and that would be another thing that I would say in terms of um, that, that, that's kind of where, where you need to be careful in terms of, you know, cutting the cloth accordingly. I think in the long term, sometimes when you, if you cut the, the cloth accordingly game per game, then it can have an effect, I think, in the dress room in terms of like, what, what does this guy actually believe in? Um, it's a psychological um, buy-in, really, isn't it? Yeah, like, I, and to talk about Guardiola again, like he calls it a seduction. Now I wouldn't go that far, um, but he he calls it a seduction, and I think you can get the the you know the analogy behind that in terms of and it, like there's definitely a truth to that in terms of like how you deliver the message is important, and if you absolutely believe it, like. The worst salesman in the world can be a good salesman if he's got a brilliant product that he believes in. You know what I mean? Because it's hard to fake that, that natural, this is brilliant and these are the reasons why I think it's brilliant. People, I think, naturally buy into that because especially when you spend every day with people, like you'd have to be a very good liar uh, to, to get them to invest in something that you don't yourself believe in. Um, and I think that's the big, like you mentioned, the difference between coaching and management. And I, I think that's it. You know, when you are a grassroots coach, it can be we're working on combinations today. And, you know, combinations or whatever it might be are important, regardless of style in many ways. Um, so, so, you know, you can be in love with football, in love with coaching and deliver that message. Uh, but when you're a manager and ultimately it's about like delivering wins because it's people's jobs and, and there's mortgages underlying all the rest of it. I, I, I do think that that like the psychological side comes into it massively. Then, I mean, with all that being said, I mean, inheritance style of play and the principles you've spoken about, I mean, over there in Cambodia, obviously I presume Cambodian isn't your first or second language, Connor, but, um, you know, is that more implicit within your session design? Well, it's my second language now, uh, and I think that speaks speaks more to how poor I was at speaking Irish in school, uh, how what what a bad student I was, and even worse student in secondary school German. Um, but it's my uh, yeah, Khmer, the Cambodian language is my is my second language now. Um, yeah, look, uh, like the the thing I would always say, uh, and like. My, the people that I've employed to come here and work with me are all English speakers. And the big thing that I, I often say to them when they're delivering sessions or part of the sessions is that there can be a debrief sometimes with my coaches where I'm like, that's a great game. I remember doing that game so often and I know why you did it. You know, he was trying, let's say it's a sports scientist and he's uh, playing rugby, for example, and he's he's doing it because he wants to get accelerations and decelerations in into the players early in the session, or he might want to get sprints in or um, maneuvers to beat an opponent without the difficulty of the ball mastery. So um, completely see why he's doing it, but then you have to, through translation, explain the rules of rugby to people who don't know the rules of rugby, right? So that's a big task. Um, so yeah, in your session design, like language becomes a really big part of, I love that game and I've done that game lots in the past and it worked really well, but it doesn't and it won't work here. Um, so you, you do have to think about that a lot. And then like the use of language as well in terms of like, there's some things here where the, the players now use the English words because the football terminology doesn't really uh, work in Kamar. Um, you know, so 
like um in Kumar, like obviously if you're, you're defending and you're going to say left or right or whatever you speak in Kumar in, in, in that way that's no problem but like the simple things that we would have like in the english language like shouting shoulders for example for that defender at the back post just to open up so that he doesn't get his body shape wrong so quick so sharp um but if you shouted the Kumar equivalent it wouldn't mean that um so so we've had to do that in my time here. There's, there's Khmer words we use in certain situations and there's English words. And then there's making sure that the, the non-Khmer speakers within the team uh, understand those words as well. Um, and, and like I would go along with um, football is its own kind of international language. You don't need to learn a lot. But again, going back to clarity, like, you know, there definitely are moments when you need to get messages across really quickly, particularly those on the field. Um, and that, that's something we've, we, we've had to develop and, and it didn't come right away and, and it came through error as a, you know, um, trial and error. Um, and we probably aren't 100% there yet on that one. Uh, you know, we have players who come, who may have been massive communicators in other teams that they were in. And there's a feeling that this is, um, they, they lose that when they come here. Um, um, and they also lose it because when you talk about Cambodian football, the last generation of Cambodian footballers weren't professionals. So my 26, 27-year-olds are the first senior pros that ever existed in Cambodian football. Um, and that's difficult because, you know, who, who led them? Amateurs led them. So the habits that they know aren't particularly the great habits. And the standards wouldn't have been high standards. Uh, so a lot of the 20, 21-year-olds that kind of I have brought up through the ranks now, I, I would be excited to see what they're like when they're 28, 29. Um, because, you know, their role models are a little bit better than the ones that preceded. Um, um, so and I, I like I do think that that will improve things like like language that you've just spoken about. Really interesting too that essentially you know those players are masters of their own destiny. They're writing themselves into legacy going forward, being the very first generation of professional footballers. And what we spoke about off camera, we were speaking about COVID here in Dubai and out in Cambodia, and you know what's the precedent for us as humans in relation to you know yeah. dealing with a pandemic. I suppose you yeah. just you don't know you just do and you see where that charts where that charts your progress but then getting back to yourself connor i mean you've assumed a high degree of responsibility you manage a group of players not only that you manage your staff you take i mean firstly there with the coaching with the recruitment with the analysis i mean who does connor nestor go to in terms of getting guidance or looks for in terms of mentors well, I said there's two sides to that question. There's, there's, there's within my own life, which, which I think is actually maybe the most important element in terms of I didn't have those reference points, let's say, as a young player growing up. But for my job now, I had great reference points in terms of, of my dad growing up was, was a massive influence on me and, and my older brother now. Um, and my older brother, you know, um, is in a management role in his line of work and uh, I think has much bigger pressures on him than I do. Um, so he's a great person to go to. And my, 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 my dad, in terms of, was a great leader by example, in terms of, um, you know, in his, his work, he would have had a management position as well. And... Um, like I think, I think um, how you carry yourself when you're in a leadership position is important. And when I spoke about 2018, I think maybe one of the things that we got right in hindsight is those of us in leader leadership positions. And there was there was more than just me. There was there was, there was about four key people, and we didn't get too high, we didn't get too low, and and there was a consistency there. Um, 
And I, I definitely think both my father and my brother would have been massive influences to me in that regard in terms of um, just a good kind of, the good characters that kind of had that in them. Um, professionally, I've been extremely fortunate in that when I went on my coaching journey, there was there was a man by the name um, of Noel O'Reilly, who was on my youth cert, who sadly has passed, but he was the assistant manager under Brian Kerr and all those underage international teams uh, that did really well for Ireland in the 90s, uh, won European championships, came third in the world. Um, I was lucky to have him on what's now a C licence. Um, and there was a local regional development officer by the name of Brian McCarthy, who went on actually to be Brian Kerr's um, video analyst in a time, you know, when Google didn't exist, as, as you said yourself. So those were two people in, at the beginning and, and like the, both of them were just incredible coaches, um, but also very given of their time. Um, also, I think visionary people in terms of they really, they realized that um, Ireland needed a generation of coaches and they put a lot of time into developing coaches themselves. You know, they love working with players. I think that's what we, we all love the most, but uh, they, they were real coach educators. And then towards the tail end of my time in Ireland, Niall Harrison and, and Colin O'Brien, uh, I had on my BNA licenses and Niall Harrison is one of the best coaches I've ever seen in an operation. Uh, and I, I've been lucky to go to many countries to watch high profile coaches coach. Uh, and Colin O'Brien on my A license, like I, I was working, I don't know, 15, 16 years already when I did my A license. And I thought I could do self analysis quite well. But Colin was brilliant in terms of just dragging, dragging one or two more pieces of information from a kind of self analysis perspective out of you then then you would have got on your own if that makes sense and um so i'm really really fortunate um to have had good role, role models kind of from the beginning really uh, on the coaching journey and um um you know i haven't mentioned my mother it's uh, like but like i did read somewhere I'm not sure if, if it was John Wooden or if I'm giving this quote to the wrong person, but like parent, you should parent like a coach and you should coach like a parent. And the first time I saw that, I really understood, understood that in terms of, you know, uh, good parents. I, I think there's, there's an element of guiding is the word that you, you used yourself earlier. Um, and, and then good coaches, like when you think of a parent, you think of care. Um, and I think that's the balance and act a little bit um, in, in, in terms of like um, play, players when you know they care about them are, are certainly a lot more invested. Um, and then there's that, that guidance role that you have is a lot, a lot easier. Um, or certainly that, you know, the, the trust that's needed um, forms a lot quicker and, and stays a lot longer, I think. That's an excellent answer, Connor. I mean, there's so much there to pick at. But at the end of the day, it's just vital, isn't it? Imperative to have that support network. I had, um, for example, Juan Delgado on the podcast recently, the Academy Director of Austin FC. He's produced World Cup winners for Valencia, for Villarreal. And he said to me off camera, you know, that football to him, it's 90% social competence, 90% human relationships. He said the rest of it you can obtain from the internet. And he's so right. But in yeah. terms of, you know, someone like yourself who's essentially dedicated your life to football, Connor, what do you do off the pitch to kind of switch off? Oh, it's really difficult. I have to be honest. It, it was my, my, my girlfriend's birthday on Sunday just passed. And uh, we had a top of the table clash here with the, the champions from last year. So we lost the league last season on the last day of the season. Uh, we had to win our game. They had to lose theirs. They got a goal to draw on the seventh minute of stoppage time. And uh, so we played them in our potential revenge match, let's say, on, on Sunday. And uh, we lost to a last-minute goal. Um, so you have to come back a day later, having you know missed 
missed your your significant other's um, birthday party, and and then she has to have her birthday party a day later because you can't be there, and you gotta you gotta put a brave face on it, haven't you? Because like oh, I think everybody knows the pressures of work-life balance, and and I think that's difficult for everybody. And like I, I have some mates that are that are doctors and I'm all the time like ask how do you switch off and did you did you do it when you went to university did they teach you how to do it and answer to that's no um uh, but I know that those doctors they're better at it than I am um um and you know that's definitely somewhere that where I need to try and develop over time and um unfortunately as well I have one of those faces that you never have to ask me how I'm feeling. My face is telling you already, um, uh, which is, is, is not particularly great, actually, for the job that I'm in. Uh, if my face could lie a little bit more, it would be good, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's really, it's really difficult. But I think it's difficult. Look, it comes back to caring, uh, what I said in my last answer. And, and you, like you can't. I don't know how to switch on, a, on and off that tap. Um, um, and like, I know that we get successes because of, because of that. Um, um, so will I learn over time how to do that and get that work-life balance a little bit better? I'm not sure. I was in Melbourne before I came here and I was going to do, you know, a, a coaching role that would have been less, uh, wouldn't have the pressures that I have now, let's say. And Melbourne, I don't know if you've ever been. Melbourne is the best city I've ever been in. In work, work-life balance. It's not. It's 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 life-work balance in 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 Melbourne. It's it's it's. Uh, and I think Australians are quite good at at doing things that way. Um, and but I chose this job over that, uh, which ultimately I think, you know, when when. When you decide to do this job, I, I do think there probably is a little bit of a trade-off. And, you know, it's the, I think the book is Living, Living on the Volcano. Um, uh, Michael Calvin. Yeah, so it, it alludes to that, you know. And, and um, like, don't get me wrong that I, I'm playing the world's smallest violin here. I wouldn't change it for the world in terms of, like, when, when you're winning, this is the best job, apart from being a footballer, the best job on the planet. Um, and when you're losing, it's difficult. But you know, maybe it's difficult because because you want it to be as well. In terms of there's, it's not maybe even subconscious. You're like consciously, you know, I have to feel this pain because this pain is also a driver. And uh, the more successful people, you like, you know, you listen to a Ray Keen or whatever when he's on on the TV now. And I remember the famous clip of. Aston Villa celebrating when they stayed up from, they didn't get relegated and they were celebrating in the dress room and the camera panned to Ray Keane in the studio and like Ray Keane can't turn that off about his personality now. He's not like, and it's got nothing to do with him, right? Um, he's not connected to it in any way, shape or form. Now, I'd love to think I'm a Ray Keane type character. I'm not. Um, but I think there's a similarity there in terms of like um, that, that, that switching off mechanism is not something that, I, that I've developed. Um, uh, but, but hopefully over time, you know, t- things get better when you try to develop them. And um, that, that's one that's definitely on my to-do list, I'd say, you know. Yeah, but, you know, after in life too, you can't always relate, can you? I mean, when you've that tried and tested formula, that's, you know, in your own mind, that's given you and validated your success. You know, why mess yeah. with that? But in terms of, I mean, with so much on your plate at the moment, Connor, I mean, you're really living in the moment. Have you taken out time or considered, I mean, your future, going back to Ireland, Europe? Yeah, I mean, the, the end of this season is my fourth season. I, I've been so fortunate here with my bosses in terms of they've really bought into me and believed in me. And, and we've been, we're building a training ground at the moment. Uh, when I came here, there was a 10-year-old push lawnmower cutting the grass in the stadium. And it was kind of a microcosm for the job that was ahead, I think. Um, 
but now we're building a you know a state of the art training ground for for where we are in the world and, and for the league that we're playing in and um so so I, I you know I, I I do want to walk away here when I feel like my job is done uh, but you are always conscious in the position that I'm in and the job that I'm in of you know walking away before you you're told to walk away um and uh you know advice from my brother is always like you know leave when they want more um and like he's managed his career very well um and i think it's really good advice um but i suspect like i worked for the fai for nine years my little plan and my little black book was to stay for three um uh but i stayed for nine and and uh is it a regret no because i think i developed a lot of the skills that i'm using now because i wanted to stay because i had this feeling of not not having done enough i knew i i i i gave everything i had but um together with all the people i worked with i didn't feel we were accomplishing enough in the end i realized i could be there till i was 80 and that would be the feeling and i think that's got back to what you said in terms of like you know it's 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 about learning these things and developing as you go a little bit and uh, i do feel i've learned a lot of things from that fai experience of um you know maybe maybe the end of this season will be the time here uh but i i know that there'll be a conversation kind of between me and the owners and it will be a situation where we feel that it's right for everybody um and if we feel it's right for all parties, then then we'll do that kind of at the end of the season. Um, have I really thought about where next in terms of destination or type of club and stuff like that? Not, not 100%, which I'm sure many people will, will probably think is, is, is naive. Or, uh, but um, I think what I bring to the table when I come somewhere is that you get it, you get the whole package and you get a complete investment and um and when when you know we press pause or, or stop or whatever it is here um i'm happy to do what i did when i left the fai and I, I took my time and i reviewed and and um um tried to improve some weaknesses and and i think that's why we've had some success here because i took the time to do that um Hopefully, I'll get a lot more win bonuses between now and then, so I, ha I can afford to do that again. Um, but no, I, that, that's kind of the way I see it. And, and um, you know, I, I, I read once before that Tottenham decided to take Pochettino because when, when they wanted to speak with him, he was a little bit kind of like, I, I, you know, I, I can't speak to you because I'm the Southampton coach. And... Uh, you know, the, the, uh, I'm not sure where I read it, but it was it was it was like, you know, he hadn't done a deep dive on Tottenham Football Club. He hadn't done uh, a massive analysis on what he would do when he got there. Uh, he's 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 um, his project that he did to get the job was Southampton, um, and and that's kind of the way I I look at this here in terms of like. Um, you know, may, may try try and make the work you're doing your masterpiece, and those that are interested in that will be interested in it, and those that aren't won't. Um, and we'll we'll find out when everything's all over if I was right or not. You know, uh, I don't know if I'm right or not, but I I just know that that's that's kind of how I'm wired, and a bit like you you said in your question, it's kind of like, you know, I I think. The, Developing is really important and like we have to be lifelong learners in the positions that we're in. Um, but also you have to kind of be true to yourself and you have to do what naturally works for you and, and, and kind of your, your own natural character. Um, and I think that's probably the way, the way I'll continue to do it, I would say. Yeah, it seems to me, Connor, it's a journey that hasn't yet run its course and it very much is a book I reckon people would buy if it was on the shelves, metaphorically speaking. Finally, to close, I mean, what advice for coaches would you have that are wishing to embark in a similar pathway to yourself? That's a great question. Like, I was 17, I, I, I wasn't thinking about being a pro coach. I was 18, I was obsessed with being a pro coach. 
I was probably obsessed with being a manager. Uh, and then what happened along the way was I forgot about being a manager and I just got busy trying to be a better coach. Uh, another thing that happened along the way is I got to work with a guy called Tommy Barrett, who's the, the manager of Treaty United now in the second tier in Ireland. He's got the lowest budget in, in the second tier in Ireland and they're second on the table because he's just an absolutely brilliant man manager. And, you know, the, the 90% of the job, as you described it, is absolutely outstanding. And when I worked with Tommy as he was an assistant with Limerick FC, I was like, I don't want to be a manager. This is the best job in the world here. Tommy's doing all this managing of the egos and all the man management and all the rest of it. And I'm, I'm just being a coach, which is what I spent years trying to master. Um, so so m my advice to people a little bit would be like, that's what's worked for me in terms of getting lost a little bit on the journey in terms of the obsessions changed in some ways over time. The, the obsession in the beginning was improving the young boys that I had. And I remember the motivating factor being, I didn't feel ready for my international under 15s trials. I wanted them if they, they got them to be ready. And obviously had enough of, uh, of an ego as a 17 year old to think that I was the man <laughs> to fill the gap. Um, but you know, that was the first journey. Then it was the, yeah, it was the ambition took over the ambition threw itself away for getting lost in developing, um, developing the tools, I guess. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, I've, I've, I've ended up getting this job because I developed the tools more so than anything else, not because, uh, I wanted at 18 to be a manager. Uh, I think the most important part along that journey was the part where you got lost, got lost in the work and trying to be better at it. Um, and I remember leaving a job in Ireland when I was 22. It was an okay job. I was a shipping agent after university. I became a shipping agent. I never became a teacher. And like it was an okay job. It was at home with my family. I wanted to be at home at the time. And uh Salary was good, no problems, easy. And I gave it up to get $220 a week out in the US because they would let me coach for about a thousand hours in, in nine months. And I couldn't get that as a volunteer in Ireland, even though I was coaching as many hours as I possibly could. Um, so that, that, that's kind of my advice is, is just get lost in, in trying to get better. Um, and I think the opportunities will come in the end um w when you do that but you need to be patient like you know uh, i people when i got the the head coach job here saying god you're so lucky you're so lucky you were in the right place at the right time which is 100 percent accurate by the way because i wasn't even meant to be staying I, I just happened to be here waiting for a visa uh my my visa to come for australia that i was being given a two-year sponsorship there so it's true i was in the right place at the right time I was in the right place at the right time with 17, 18 years experience, a UFAA license, and having coached lots of young boys in a very rural part of Ireland to go into elite pro academies in England. Um, so th that's, that's, that's the bit that they should focus on. The look kind of comes a after all of that. Um, and then, you know, if, if I was motivated by money, I wouldn't have taken this job. Um, but now this is a great thing about football, you know, big contracts will, will, will come if, if I start doing a better job and the focus should be on doing a better job, right. Or getting better at what I'm doing. Um, and I, I think ultimately like as coaches, we should really be able to identify with that because that's what we want from our players, isn't it? Um, you know, we, that's, that, that's what we want, want from them and having delivered as a tutor uh, working for the FBI so many foundation level coach, uh, coaching courses that was often the bit that gripped me about the coaches on on the coaching courses that they weren't the same as students you know what they were like as students on these coaching courses was not what they, they were saying they wanted from their players um so so you know it's 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 cyclical really the whole thing when you like uh, w when you start on the journey.
Matthew McConaughey had a quote in his book and really struck me. Reminds me of your own journey, Connor. It's uh, the target doesn't draw the arrow. The arrow draws the target. The, the arrow doesn't draw the target. The target draws the arrow. But yeah. it's just, it's been fascinating speaking with you, Connor, learning more about your journey over the past hour. And I'm sure many people are going to take so many lessons from this and derive many anecdotes from your own unique experience. But where's best for people to catch up with you on the socials? Um, good question. Probably Twitter. Um, I'm not even sure what my Twitter handle is, but uh, hold on, let me let me check here. It's probably changed over the years. Do they have um, that on Nokia phones? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, at Connor Nestor 17. There you go. Uh, that that probably is the best because I, uh, I'm on all of them, but um, I probably go on onto Twitter a bit more. Uh, ironically, the one where you can type the least seems to be the one with the most information on it. Uh, that, that's the world we're living in at the moment. That's the, 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 the paradox of this uh, technological age. Um, but I'm not from that age, as you've mentioned already. <laughs> I think there's, no, uh, there's no better point to leave off the chat. But um, Connor, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate the, having the opportunity to speak with you. And yeah, hopefully sometime in the future we can get you on again. Yeah, my pleasure, Connor. All the best.